0: In this episode, I speak with Roman Krasnarek. Roman is a best selling author and one of the UK's leading philosophers who is passionate about the power of ideas to transform society. He is a TED speaker, a founding faculty member of the School of Life, the creator of the world's first empathy museum, and a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. Roman's books include How to Find Fulfilling Work, Empathy, The Wonder Box, and Carpe Diem Regained, and have been published in more than 20 languages. In this conversation, we discuss his most recent book, The Good Ancestor, which focuses on how to think long-term in a short-term world. In a wide-ranging discussion, we explore why long-term thinking may hold the key to solving large-scale societal issues such as climate change, how small groups of time rebels are slowly starting to influence culture and public policy to protect the rights of future generations, the psychological barriers to long-term thinking and how to overcome them, practical ways we can start widening our time horizons and a whole lot more you can learn more about roman's work at www.romancrisnaric.com and follow him on twitter at roman if you're enjoying the podcast and want to help get these ideas out there to a wider audience it would mean a huge amount to us if you could leave a short review on your favorite podcast provider whether that's itunes stitcher or spotify thanks for listening and i hope you enjoy the show Okay, Roman, welcome to the show. For anybody that isn't aware of you and your work, could you just tell us a bit about your background and how you or how you come up with the, the concept of the good ancestor?
1: Sure. So I call myself a public philosopher, which is a kind of made-up term, really. And what it's there to say, really, is that I'm interested in ideas for the art of living, but ideas that are also can change society. So that overlap between how we live and the kind of world we live in and want to live in. And, you know, that my books over the years have addressed those themes, which sort of cross over between the art of living and social change, books on empathy or Carpe Diem Regained was another book of mine about seizing the day. And my new book, The Good Ancestor, really tries to answer a simple question, which was raised by the great immunologist Jonas Sulk who discovered the polio vaccine in the 1950s. And he said in later life that the great question facing our society is this, are we being good ancestors? In other words, how are we going to be remembered by the generations to come? And Salk was someone who saw that so many of the problems facing the modern world were very long term problems, our destruction of the living world, threats from nuclear war and nuclear waste, all sorts of things like that. And To me, when I saw that question um, some years ago uh, written down, the scales sort of fell from my eyes. I thought that is the question because it is true that we face long-term challenges like at no moment in history, the threats of the climate crisis, threats from new technologies like artificial intelligence, planning long-term for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon, dealing with deep wealth inequalities and racial the racial injustice which get passed on from generation to generation and these are all about thinking beyond the here and now extending our time horizons that really is the essence of this new book
0: fantastic and i just wonder you know your books before this um or you've done a lot of work on empathy you founded the world's first empathy museum and after that there you wrote this book carpe diem regain which focused on existential ideas and i just wonder is this uh an extension of that, like has your previous work been leading to this uh, kind of inadvertently, if that makes sense? Like, What do you think about that?
1: I think that's absolutely right. I mean, in a way, my book on empathy was very much about how do we try and step into the shoes of people in today's world, people living on the social margins, whether it's um, someone living on the streets around the corner from where we live or someone who's been hit by an earthquake in China, you know, it's all about empathy across space. Now, at the end of the book, I talked about empathy through time. How do we step into the shoes of future generations? But I kind of never really tackled it in any serious way. It was almost too difficult to try and think about that, because how do you literally imagine the life of people you have never met, the billions upon billions of people who will inhabit the future? That is a pretty tough ask, even though you might recognize its importance of trying to make that connection. So the good ancestor on some fundamental level is about that question of how do we empathize through time? But what I discovered was that empathy is not enough and it's also very difficult. You know, as you mentioned, I, I founded this empathy museum and one of our exhibits is called A Mile in My Shoes where you walk inside this gigantic shoe box which travels around the world and you can literally put on this pair of shoes of a stranger, walk a mile in their shoes while listening to an audio narrative of them talking about their own life in their own words it's very intimate and very powerful with we've, we've collected hundreds of pairs of shoes and stories but we don't have any shoes and stories from people in the year 20, 2200 right how do you make that connection um and so yeah that was really the challenge that i i set myself um to, to try and empathize through time but you know just to say something just briefly on this the way that empathy isn't enough i think it is a, a key to it we need to make that kind of do this imagining people in the future, and we can do it. Like, I can close my eyes and imagine my daughter, who's now 12, I can imagine her when she's 90 years old, right? And I, I sometimes imagine her at her 90th birthday party, surrounded by family and friends. I imagine her speaking to them about me, about the legacy that her dead father left her. You know, what did I do for her life or for, for her world? And what is her world like when I look out the window on her 90th birthday? And when I do that, imagining that makes the hair stand up on my, my, on my arm, you know, that's an empathic connection uh, in a way. But I think we can also make a more, let's say, a rational connection with the future, too. Let me give you an example. Look, there, are, there are 7.7 billion people alive today. And over the last 50,000 years, an estimated 100 billion people have been born and died. But if you project forward 50,000 years, assuming this century's birth rates level off and stabilize, nearly 7 trillion people will be born. They far outweigh everyone who has ever lived. I mean, in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people have been born. And in my book, I've got a diagram showing this gigantic circle of future generations next to a tiny dot of us in the present. And just seeing that, that those scales, one might call them. Um, being weighed up. It's not an empathic connection. It's more reason based utilitarian philosophical argument. But that too really does it for me when you realize there's all those future people and they have no political rights or representation. They have no influence in the marketplace. We've colonized their futures with ecological degradation and technological risks. And we must liberate them from the domination by the present tense from the tyranny of the now. That's what I think. 100%.
0: Okay. And you never you never spoke about it there, but I just want to say a, a quick word about um, Carpe Diem. Um, I haven't told you this before, Roman, but uh, after we did an interview on it a few years ago, um, I actually left the job I was doing a few days after that and, and got on the path to starting the weekend university. So there's a very good chance that if that hadn't happened, this conversation wouldn't be happening now. So it's funny how these things... That's really interesting.
1: Actually, I remember once another book of mine that I wrote called How to Find Fulfilling Work. Apparently, one of my book editors uh, read it and left her job while she was after having read that one. But actually, there is a relevance here to Carpe Diem Regain with regard to the good ancestor, Because people sometimes say, well, wait a minute, seizing the day, Carpe Diem, that's all about living in the moment, living here and now, like bungee jumping or, you know, going out partying, hedonism. Um, isn't that the opposite of long-term thinking of being a good ancestor but as you know from my book seizing the day is something that you can do now but could have impacts long in the future so you could seize the day and decide to have children you know but which which will have impact for decades to come or there you are you seize the day you you leave your old job and you embark on something new which will shape your life for decades and I think that's also in relation to the themes of the good answers. Like how do we tackle the cr- climate crisis? Well, we need to act right now, right? For example, by radically changing our energy systems in order to have long-term impacts on the future. So there's kind of no contradiction there. In a way, this is really about seizing this moment of opportunity we have to take
0: a longer view. 100%. And one of the, one of the benefits you talk about in The Good Ancestor is that this long-term thinking and this and thinking about um, future generations, it can provide something called existential sustenance. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that and um, why that's important?
1: Sure, so Groucho Marx, a great comedian famously said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? And in a way that I think is something that a lot of people intuitively feel. You know, look, I've got enough problems in my own life. I've got stuff to deal with. Why should I be caring about The long term, what could it possibly do for me? Well, if you step back and think for a moment about where is it that humankind gets purpose from? Now, I deeply believe that we gain a sense of purpose by having transcendent goals, or what Viktor Frankl called a concrete assignment, something bigger than ourselves to aim at, a kind of meaningful objective in life, not It's not all about mindfulness and being here and in the present moment. We need something to aim at. And I think being a good ancestor, that the quest to do that is on a fundamental level, something that can give us meaning, right? A commitment to the generations to come. But I think it's not only having those transcendent goals that give us purpose, it's also relationship, right? Now, what we need to do is develop relationships with those future generations. And that's a tough call, but many cultures do it. So in some Native American communities, um, for example, amongst the Hadunoshonse and the Lakota peoples is the idea of seventh generation decision-making, making making decisions based on impact, seven generations ahead. Or in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's this concept called whakapapa, which is their word for lineage or genealogy. The idea that you're all, we're all in a long chain of life going, Far into the past and long into the future. The light happens to be shining here and now, but let's widen that light. And that's all about coming into relation with um, not just people in the here and now, but the generations to come. In fact, I had a conversation the other day with a Somali um, activist in Belgium. And she was saying that her grandmother in Somalia used to say, Look, whenever you're feeling down, imagine yourself in a long line of all your ancestors and your descendants and just look to the left at the one in the past next to you and recognize how much your life depended on theirs and look to the right and look into the eyes of the one the next generation ahead and how much their life will depend on yours and just recognize that you are part of something bigger and I thought that was a really beautiful way of talking about the way we can come into relationship through time and so existential sustenance a sense of meaning in its broader sense can come from that sense of relation and let me say one more aspect of it because we normally think of existentialism in terms of agency making choices but it's also i think about something larger about meaning and i think one of the things about long-term thinking is that you can practice it by not thinking about time but by thinking about place because Let me say something about that, because this is really, this is one of the realizations I had while I was writing this book. I didn't expect this when I first started on it. If you think about how other species have survived for 10,000 generations or more, like a bear or beaver or bird, um, it's by taking care of the place that will take care of their offspring, by living within the boundaries of the ecosystem in which they're embedded, by not fouling the nest, which is what humans have been doing with great destruction over the last century, of course pushing ourselves beyond co2 limits and and ocean acidification and biodiversity loss and so on so the message there is if you want to think long term actually you need to fall in love with place right learn to live within its boundaries that's about falling in love with rivers and mountains and ice sheets and savannas now that is a source of existential sustenance for so many people it taps into what the the great um, evolutionary biologist Edward O. Wilson called biophilia, the way we're naturally drawn to life and, and lifelike processes. So that's another way I think that we can act and live for the long term by connecting with the living world by falling in love with it. And I think there's a hell of a lot
0: of sustenance in that. 100% percent 100%. Um, so we're at a very interesting time in uh, history right now. you know we've got COVID happening. And I'm just, your book came out, I think, just as, was it this time last, last year, whenever we were just starting to go into lockdowns and things. And do you think that the current situation could provide a catalyst for, for changes that might not have been possible otherwise?
1: Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really profound question behind that, which is how do humans beings respond to crises, right? Because this is a crisis and can good come out of crises? Well, we know quite a lot about crises from history we've got so many to to look at but one of the patterns is that they can be both good and bad our responses you know positive and negative so if you think about the crisis of say the wall street crash and the great depression well out of that crisis well some countries like in scandinavia moved towards social democracy other places it shifted them towards fascism right so it's a kind of a fork in the road you can go down so You know, and then some crises, you know, look, think about the Second World War was very important for long termism. If you think about the new institutions which emerged out of the ashes of the war, things like the European Union, um, the National Health Service in the UK, the World Health Organization a global level, incredible long term institutions. So out of COVID, I think there is a potential to embark us on new kinds of long-term thinking we've seen it in some really progressive cities so the way that paris kind of took COVID as an opportunity to kick-start a green new deal closing roads turning them into parks and bike lanes or the way that amsterdam adopted the donor economics model of the the economist kate rayworth which is and and they've adopted these very strict or, or very ambitious great ambitions to have no fossil fuel cars after 2030 or be 100% circular by 2050, that's all come out of COVID, right? But on the other hand, you get these other responses, you know, you get a lot of countries just saying, basically going back to business as usual, we've got to, you know, solve the problem of jobs or deal with debt, we have got to get the economy growing again, and so on. And then you just put us back on the path to ecological destruction. So let me say one more thing here, which I think is really important. And I, I'm not quite sure what I think about this, but I remember when COVID first happened, when I, this book first came out. You know, one of the first things that happened in my street was that, as in streets around the world, in both low and high-income countries, we formed a WhatsApp group. Uh, we hadn't been talking to each other very much before that, but suddenly there are a hundred people on this group. We were delivering food to local people who were vulnerable, or sharing sourdough bread recipes, or whatever. And that group is still vibrant today. And those kinds of community um, interdependence that has emerged out of COVID, in a digital way, sure, I think is the basis for creating new forms of grassroots democracy and trust and community and empathy and all sorts of good stuff. We've just got to start harnessing it now.
0: Definitely, definitely. Um, So, one of the things I found most interesting about, about the book, Roman, was this idea of a deep time humility. And you've, you've you've touched on it briefly before. um, But I just wonder, you know, would it be easier to feel connected to our, um, our descendants if we had a stronger connection to our past? So if we, you know, if we, developed a stronger knowledge of where we came from and the the ancestors that sort of went before us do you think that could help because i sort of have the sense that a lot of a lot of us feel we sort of just have landed in this world and we feel a bit disconnected from our past and therefore that might be a a problem in the future as well what are are your thoughts on that
1: yeah i agree with you actually i mean not long ago i was watching philip pullman's dark materials series on tv and where the children are severed From their demons, from their souls. And in a way I feel we're kind of severed not from our souls but from our ancestors in our hyper individualistic capitalist world. Of course, you know, as I said, you know, some cultures have that deep sense of intergenerational connection with seventh generation decision making and so on. But we need to look towards our past in order to look towards our futures. I absolutely agree with that. In fact, there's a great Maori saying which goes something like, I walk backwards into the future with my eyes on my past. And that raises a question, going back to Jonas Salk on the idea of being a good ancestor, that's about what legacies are we going to leave future generations? But we need to think about also the legacies that we've inherited. Now, we've inherited some very positive legacies like the cities we still live in, or the medical discoveries from people like Salk that we still benefit from. But we've also inherited incredibly destructive legacies too. You know, legacies of slavery, colonialism and racism that create deep inequities that now must be repaired or legacies of economies that are structurally addicted to endless growth and fossil fuels that we now have to transform. So we've got to ask ourselves, well, which bits of the past we want to keep and which bits do we want to pass on? Right. And, and in a way that connects with a really key philosophical and ethical idea, which is the idea of the golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Now, we tend to think of that. And that's, a, that's an ideal, which is in most religions and ethical systems, you know, it has been since the axial age, you know, thousands of years ago, but we can think about doing in, unto others. We'd have them do unto us, not just across space in today's world, but through time, you know, let's do unto future generations, how we would want past generations to have done unto us. You know, and that really raises the question like, OK, is it OK to dump high level nuclear waste on future generations? You know, would we want to live in a world where suddenly there was just this waste that was just seeping all into our water systems? What would we think about it if the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians had done that to us, we would be pretty pissed off?
0: A hundred percent. You would not look favorably up upon those people. Um, so what I was going to ask next is, um, what would you say are... how much of this is rooted in human psychology now you you use a metaphor in the book um the marshmallow brain and the and the acorn brain can you tell us a bit about that and some of the maybe some of the barriers to to thinking more long term
1: yeah i think we've got a narrative in society where we tend to see ourselves as short-term creatures driven by instant rewards and immediate gratification you know we're constantly clicking the buy now button and that's true to a certain extent but of course When you think about it, most of us, I think, are in a kind of a struggle, a little bit of a tug of war in our minds between the drivers of the short term and the long term. Like, Do I party today or save for my pension for tomorrow? Do I upgrade to the latest iPhone or plant a seed in the ground for posterity? And in the book, I talk about these two parts of the brain, the short term marshmallow brain and the long term acorn brain. And the marshmallow brain is that the bit was named after that famous psychology test that, you know, in the 1960s, the marshmallow test where you know, marshmallow was put in front of kids and if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they were rewarded with a second marshmallow and though and behold, the majority of the kids couldn't resist and snatch the snack and gobbled it up. But that's just part of the story of who we are, right? Because we also have this acorn brain wired into us now, in you know, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex at the front of our heads. And that's the part of our brain which focuses on long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. That's the part of the brain which plants seeds in the ground for the future. So, you know, other creatures do think ahead a little bit. So like a chimpanzee will get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole, but they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. But that's what human beings do. It's amazing. We are masters of the temporal pirouette. Our minds dance across time horizon. That's the acorn brain is what enables us to, you know, save for our kids' education or write song lists for our own funerals or build the Great Wall of China or voyage into space. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, you know, everybody has their own favorite uh, example of what makes humans different from other creatures, you know, our our capacity for making tools or language or whatever it is. But I tell you, the capacity to think beyond the here and now, think long-term is pretty amazing, (laughs) you know? And, you know, we're not that good at it. I mean, we could be a lot better at it. You know, if someone chucks a rock at your head, you'll duck out of the way immediately, but if the rock is coming slow and long-term like climate change, it's a bit harder to duck out of the way. But we can imagine into the future. We can respond. That is how we built the cathedrals of medieval Europe, cathedral thinking, by all these people who embarked on projects they never thought would be finished within their lifetimes, but they did it anyway. That's amazing.
0: hundred percent, but... For for someone at home listening to this, and they might be a bit skeptical about, about these ideas, right? Um, I was I was watching a talk last night from a guy called Rutger Bregman. Are you are you aware of this, this yeah. man? Um, and he quoted Orwell in the talk, and he he said the quote was, "Poverty annihilates the future," and he was saying that it's it's almost impossible to think about the future if, you know, if you're in a if you're in a bad situation and what do you say to someone who says you know we need to sort out the here and now first before we can start thinking about future generations what would your response be to to that claim
1: right next to me i've got about a foot width of orwell's books next to me um but the idea that poverty annihilates future i just think that's wrong (laughs) um but why well this is interesting because of course on one level if i think back to my father right who was a refugee from Poland to Australia after the Second World War. He was just trying to survive. You know, he had nothing. You know, he couldn't find any way to live. Couldn't find, you know, he could find food to eat. But, you know, he was struggling. He was just trying to deal with the here and now. And, of course, on some fundamental level, that's the case for the world's 220 million migrants and refugees today. And in that sense, yes, poverty and uh, many forms of oppression, war and so on, can annihilate the future. But one of the really interesting discoveries I've made uh, through doing this research around being a good ancestor is to discover in a way the opposite. In fact, some of the communities that think longest, have the longest time horizons are really on the social margins. Think about those Native American communities which have been campaigning against um, oil pipelines and and fracking pipelines in in North America, Um, the Dakota Access Pipeline and. And things like that, Standing Rock, um, you know, and ha- have this seventh generation thinking idea. They're not from the upper middle classes. They're from socioeconomically from the bottom of society in many ways, not culturally from the bottom of society in any sense, quite the opposite. Equally, in amongst uh, Maori people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, again, o- often socioeconomically marginalized, but a very strong sense of intergenerational justice and ecological stewardship. And in fact, often it's the You know, aristocrats, the super wealthy who have the narrowest sense of legacy, they want to leave something to their kids, maybe a manor house, you know, but not very much beyond that to anybody else. Right. Mm. And even if you think about the case of refugees, just think about the people in boats holding their children, willing to risk their lives going across the Mediterranean. Well, why are they doing it? It's to create a better life for their kids. Often, you know, sometimes they've been absolutely forced. Sometimes they've made a choice difficult and dangerous choice to do something better for their children they're absolutely thinking about the future so let's say that it's not that george oil is completely wrong or anyone who thinks that long-term thinking is just for the people of the present or the middle classes but there's a certain complexity to to it and it's certainly not a monopoly of those who are well off
0: yeah definitely what do you think um i'm not sure uh, like I can imagine if I was in a situation where I was just worried about putting putting food on the table um and that was like you know that was my main concern. I don't think I would have the capacity to be thinking about you know future generations, but you you've made a very good strong argument there that it's um it, you don't have to be in a very privileged position to to be thinking about these these ideas you know um about about short short-term thinking, I, I just wonder you know, if you have this, if you have this view of human nature, that it's this short-term dopamine driven sort of, you know, like that, that way of that view of the, the human mind, I wonder is that probably, that's probably a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy. Whereas if you consider all the, like the long-term projects that we've, we've put together, whether it's the pyramids in Egypt or like Gaudi's cathedral in Barcelona, and all these things that we've been able to create over time, um, yeah, I just I think more awareness needs to be brought to to these kind of projects, you know, and that's what you've done through this through this book. Yeah, I mean, I, that's how I partly see the project
1: of this book is to tell a different story about who we are and what we're capable of. I mean, in the same way that, you know, for the last 20 years, there's been this whole series of books written challenging the idea that we're just individualistic, self-serving creatures that where we as much as me, you know, I read my book, Empathy on that, Rudka Bregman, you know, who you just mentioned, has you know, written about that um, in his book, Humankind, and, and so have many others. In fact, it goes back to the economist Amartya Sen in the 1970s, who challenged the idea that we were just rational economic creatures. Right. So we've got this new narrative that we're we as much as me, and we also need a new narrative that we're long thinkers as well as short thinkers, that's that's partly what this book is all about. And I think once we start telling ourselves that story, then we start designing the world differently. Um, so for example, look, Wales has a future generations commissioner. So a political position dedicated to the, you know, thinking at least 30 years ahead, far beyond what most political figures would normally think about. So that's about redesigning our democracies for the long-term. So once you start having a conversation in society about future generations and intergenerational justice, can start talking seriously about things like okay should the whole uk have a future generations commissioner well in fact there is a bill before parliament right now with that very intent i was helping draft it just last week you know and um and you know in the in the dutch elections which are uh just around the corner they're talking about whether the netherlands should have a a future generations ombudsman um why not so this kind of discussion can only happen when you bring new ideas into the world and that's what I think the weekend university and other institutions like yours are really important for doing because it's about changing what I think of as the ethnosphere which is the kind of the the cultural ideas the beliefs and attitudes in which we swim in which we breathe like the biosphere uh, we got to start changing those stories about who we are and what we can do and I absolutely believe we have the capacity to think and act for the long term. We've got a lot of institutions um, fighting against us, 24-7 media, um, speculative capitalism, a whole load of things which are keeping us in the here and now, but we can break through that myopia of the present.
0: And something I found fascinating, what you talk about in the book, is something called the tyranny of the clock and how... You... The invention of the clock during the Industrial Revolution, the effect that has had on our psychology. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, the clock is a disaster historically. Um, the mechanical clock, I mean, I mean, uh, sundials were OK and and um, water clocks made by the Chinese in the 10th century and so on. But by, in the 14th century, when Europeans invented the mechanical clock, that's when we really started slicing up time. And so the first clocks used to chime every hour, maybe every 15 minutes. But by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, most clocks had second hands. And that's why the clock became one of the key machines of domination in the industrial revolution, to keep the assembly line moving, to keep workers moving faster and faster. But at the same time, it was making the future disappear. We were having to live in the here and now. Our our sense of the future was coming closer and closer towards the present. Of course, now we've got nanosecond speed share trading and it's gone even further. So in a fundamental level, we need to liberate ourselves from that domination by clock time, the tyranny uh, of the clock. And that's partly why ideas like deep time that you mentioned earlier are really important. That sense that you know, humankind is just an eye blink in the cosmic story. We've only been around for a couple of hundred thousand years which is nothing on the scale of the age of the earth you know life on earth going back at least four billion years nearly and and probably go on for billion years into the future with or without us i mean if the age of the earth is the distance from your nose to the tip of your outstretched hand one stroke of a nail file on your middle finger erases human history and that should give us a sense of humility because like who are we to have wrought such destruction in the last couple of hundred years since the industrial revolution since the age of the mechanical clock, you know, what right do we have to destroy this planet, you know, without, without ecological destructiveness with our technological um, risks as well. So I think very much this whole project is about rethinking our relationship with time. And let's remember that time is a social invention, in, in, in a fundamental ways, you know, we have been bred into born into mechanical clock time and let's connect with those longer cycles of nature which we find in many indigenous cultures the cycles of the moon and the stars and the seasons and the carbon cycle the sort of the breathing in and the breathing
0: out um, that takes us at
1: a different pace
0: definitely I think I think that's so important Um, so now I'd like to touch on I think is it six you give six like ways people can uh start to develop long-term thinking in the book um for someone at home listening to this that wants to start to start developing this kind of way of looking at the world and yeah i'd be curious to ask what are some practical things that someone can do to start thinking in a more long-term way about things
1: well there's lots of fun ways that you can start with something i recently started doing which I stole this idea from the Long Now Foundation in California where I'm a research fellows. When they write the date, they put a zero in front of the year. So it's not 2021, it's zero, 02021. Zero, so immediately when you put the zero in front, you've got a span going nearly 100,000 years. It sort of extends your time horizons enormously. I mean, that's just a little trick of the trade as it were, a, a small way to become a time rebel, but it's these little things which start getting us to rethink who we are. Um, In practical terms, look, on one level, of course, we can do individual things to help us connect with uh, uh, a longer time horizons. I mean, the other day for my 50th birthday, I went with my kids to uh, visit a yew tree about a 10 minute bike ride away from my house in Oxford. And that yew tree is nearly 900 years old. And we had a picnic up actually up in its branches. Luckily, my kids were willing to go along with me on this. But we were talking about how that tree had seen had been there witnessed in a way the English civil war in the 17th century or the bubonic plague uh, in the 14th century and will be there long after we're gone. And that's a way of connecting with a deeper sense of time at an individual level. But I think we need more than that. I think we need to be acting collectively as well. So for example, in the United States there are some really important political struggles around long-termism to give rights to future generations. So, there's an organization called Our Children's Trust, which is campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. And they've taken the, the US government to court on behalf of 21 young people with this ambition. Now, it's a real David versus Goliath struggle, but they're inspiring lawsuits around the world. There's six young Portuguese people have taken 33 European countries to court for their um, violating the rights of the next generation because of countries failing to meet their climate. The carbon emission targets, um, and this stuff's going on everywhere. And in a way, it's one of the most significant shifts in rights since the French Revolution: rights for future generations. That's an amazing thought. I used to teach political science back in the 1990s. That idea never occurred to me, you know. Um, so I think there's all sorts of things we can do to support movements, support the idea for a future generations commissioner. But as well as, you know, I do believe in things in your own life. You know, when you're at the supermarket you can ask yourself every time you put something in the basket you can ask yourself am i being a good ancestor when i buy some beans which have been flown in an airplane from kenya you know do i have to buy that do i have to be pumping out the fossil fuels in order to make myself a tasty risotto for dinner or can i maybe put something else in it um so i think all of these ways of putting into practice the six different forms of long-term thinking my book which range from deep time humility to intergenerational justice, to developing a, a sense of a legacy mindset or connection with those generations of the future.
0: And the, th- the thing that struck me about the book is that there are so many examples of this in action. And then you also talk about um, Adam Smith had no idea that, that he was in the middle of the industrial revolution when it was happening. And I just wonder, you know, are we in the midst of a, of a, of a period of real change here, but we can't, you know, it's, it's happening in so many different areas that the pieces aren't quite clear to us right now. And what, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's funny, as I was writing the book, I really went up and down emotionally in the sense that sometimes I felt that this is an impossible task because, for example, what I'm asking for in the book is we have to completely change our political systems because they're based on short-termism and short-term electoral cycles. We need to fundamentally change our economies because they're based on meet you know the quarterly reports and, and, and short-term profits, and they're not about living within the boundaries of the one planet we know that sustains life. So on one level, I was thinking, this is impossible. But on the other hand, once I started working the book, I started realizing there were all these movements and organizations around, and individuals too, who are committed to long-term thinking and intergenerational justice. Some of them we know well. Greta Thunberg talks about the idea of cathedral thinking. That we need to think long-term. Then you've got some examples i've mentioned like you know in amsterdam the idea of a circular economy or donut economy really committing to long-term sustainability then you've got brilliant artists like the scottish artist katie patterson's embarked on a 100-year art project called future library where every year for 100 years a famous writer is donating a book which will remain completely secret and unread until the year 2114 when the 100 books we printed on paper made from a thousand trees which have been planted in the forest outside Oslo. The first person to donate a book was Margaret Atwood, Turkish writer Elif Shafak and others donated since. But just think, Margaret Atwood is never going to meet the readers. You know, she's going to be long dead. So it's this kind of thing which I think are the actions of what I call time rebels in the book, people who have this commitment to the future. And I think you're right about mentioning Adam Smith because Smith's really interesting that in, you know, he was around in the 18th century, and in the late 18th century even smith didn't recognize there was an industrial revolution emerging around him he couldn't see it because it was too fragmented too contingent so i think that's where we might be today we can't quite see there's this shift going on towards longer-term thinking in the realm of politics economics culture we see it clearly in some areas like just think of all the sci-fi novels kim stanley robinson octavia butler films like Geostorm or Day After Tomorrow, we we see that long-termism there, Blade Runner 2049, but actually there's more and more of it happening. And if you connect the dots, actually what you've got is a time rebel movement. That's not to say that it'll necessarily be successful against the entrenched institutions that we have, but I think we're doing pretty well. We could do a hell of a lot better, but we are making some progress.
0: 100%. And that idea of The the library that that woman's creating um, and Margaret Atwood donating a book that's not going to be read by anybody in her lifetime. Do you think you could do that? Because you're a writer and I'm sure you know how much work goes into into a book. Like, are you going to donate one?
1: Actually, I was thinking what would happen if they actually asked me? I mean, they won't ask me to do it, but if they did, would I be willing to do it? And it's funny because it made me think about my book on empathy that I wrote, which came out in 2015 when I started writing it, I really thought to myself, yes, I'm writing a book for today's world, where there's an empathy deficit. But I also felt I was writing a book for 100 years in the future, I was imagining a world of massive social breakdown, like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and thinking about what would we need to bind society together. You know, ultimately, that's about empathy, that capacity to make that human connection to realize another person is a human being like you. So I do think about my work quite long term but whether i'd be willing to <laughs> write a book and uh, it not be published until long after i was dead i mean it's funny i think as a writer you know the writing of books is a very long-term endeavor In fact, a dutch friend of mine called dan Ruvers, who is the she's the dutch um philosopher laureate she's called the philosopher of the nation they have like a poet laureate but they have one for philosophy and she was saying how she connects with writers that are two and a half thousand years old. She loves reading ancient Greek philosophers like Plato and Socrates, feels they're talking to her. So I think anyone who's a writer can at least likes to imagine that their books may still be read long after they're, they're gone. So, yeah, it's a really interesting thought. I mean, ultimately, this is about legacy. How do we keep the
0: flicker of our own life still going after we're dead? Definitely, definitely. Now, we, we've talked about it. You've, you've brief, briefly touched on it. Um, I would be very curious to ask you about uh, ecological economics and particularly donut economics. For anybody that isn't aware of this, this concept, could you maybe give us a, a, a brief introduction to what that is and why this is applicable to, to being a good ancestor?
1: Sure. So when I studied economics in the late 1980s at university, I didn't learn anything about ecological economics. I didn't even, I never even heard of it. But actually, it's a growing field of economics. And the basic idea is that it's going to sound almost too simplistic. You won't quite believe it. But it's the idea that the earth is a subsystem of the living world, right? This is not how economists think, right? It's not how economists think. So that means that the economy can't keep growing forever. There are natural boundaries, you know, and we're pushing over those boundaries like, on on, um, CO2 levels or ocean acidification, soil degradation. So there are these limits. And the idea of ecological economics is that we need to not use more resources that can naturally be regenerated by the earth and not create more waste than it can be naturally absorbed. And that makes sense, right? That's about living in balance, really. And then what we then need is a concrete economic model to embody that idea of ecological economics. And one of the main ones to have come along in the last few years, which has swept the world, is the idea of donut economics from the economist Kate Raworth, who I have to admit a small disclaimer, happens to be my wife. Um, But I'm not the only poor person who endorses donut economics. There's also been, there's a whole chapter in, in the Pope's latest book and David Attenborough, and it's been taken on by cities from Amsterdam and countries like Costa Rica but I am in some position to explain it. So imagine a donut, the kind with a hole in the middle and the inner circle is what uh, she calls the social foundation. And that's the idea of bringing people above a basic social foundation of basic needs and rights, like things like healthcare, education and income, things like that. But we need to do that without breaking outside the outer ring of the donut, which is the ecological ceiling made up of the nine planetary boundaries. So things like ocean acidification and CO2 levels. And in fact, if you look at our global selfie, we're overshooting on the planet four of the nine planetary boundaries, the ones where we got good data, and we're we're undershooting on almost all of the uh, social foundations, the 11 of them, actually, that there are inside the donut. So we're not getting into that, what Kate calls the safe and just space between the social foundation, the ecological ceiling. But if you think about that donut, that's very different from, the idea that most governments put forward, which is that the main aim of the economy should be to grow, 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 grow. this The donut's about thriving in balance. It's a very different ideal. And it's a recognition of working within the living world. Look, nothing in nature grows forever, whether it's the Amazon rainforest or your children's feet, right? We can't keep growing further. We have to live within the boundaries. That's the ultimate form of economic long-termism. And I think that's why the donut has really taken off because it really captures that core idea of ecological economics at the same time as recognizing we need to think about social equity as well
0: i would i would love to be a fly on the wall at your conversations over dinner <laughs> it must be crazy a um, lot of them are trying to get our kids to eat their vegetables don't worry well, speaking of which um you, you guys do you is it true that you let your kids vote for you in, in a recent election is that yeah
1: absolutely in fact in the last uk general election we gave our votes to our twins who were then 11 years old and we sat around the kitchen table and debated the party manifestos and then they then told us where to put the x on the ballot sheet and they luckily in a way they didn't exactly follow their parents political opinions they had their own freedom of thought um but in a way it was a kind of a symbolic gesture on on some level um it was i think it was an important thing to do it was a recognition of the fact that our that all children have policies which are impacting them and they have no say in it and they're the ones that are going to have to live with the consequences of it whether it is the government's failure to invest in the public health service or brexit or whatever it happens to be but i don't think that you know i mean just lowering the voting age for example wouldn't solve all our problems because you'd still have the same short termism in the electoral cycles and in the media etc And that's why you need also things like citizens assemblies grassroots deliberative democracy which has become so popular like in ireland with the um, citizen assembly which helped lead to the uh, abortion referendum and and at citizens assemblies in spain and um, belgium and other places that's another way where young people can get engaged in politics not just through putting an x on the ballot sheet or getting their parents to do it for them
0: definitely and I don't know if it's a citizen assemblies, but it's a, it's a sim, it's a similar concept. Uh, there are people in Japan that is it, they do seventh generation thinking. Can you maybe tell us a bit, a bit about that?
1: Yeah. There's this amazing movement in Japan called future design, which is directly inspired by that native American seventh generation thinking idea, but it is also a kind of form of participatory democracy or citizen assembly. And what they do is they bring together people to discuss and draw up plans for the towns and cities where they live. So it's a form of kind of local government decision making. But what they do is they typically divide them into two groups. Half of them are told their residents from the present day. And then the other half are told their residents from to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out when imagining themselves from 2060, those residents um, come up with far more transformative plans for their towns and cities, whether it's long term investment in healthcare and education or dealing with impacts of automation or taking action on climate change and this movement future design is now spreading from small towns to major cities in japan like kyoto it's even used in japan's ministry of finance by some big companies so i'd like to see future design you know adopted worldwide every city can have its own kind of ceremonial robe that you can put on to imagine yourself in 2050 or or 2060. Um, but you know that's really important that we do these kinds of experiments and revitalizing democracy because democracy in some ways is dying. You know, there's been a systematic decline in voter turnout and faith in traditional parties across the Western world, the rise of far right populism. We've got to do something different with our failing uh, political institutions.
0: Definitely. Definitely. No, you've mentioned that writing this book, there were a lot of ups and a lot of downs to, you know, you had a lot of hope and then a lot of despair as well. And I'm just curious and all these books that you write, whether it's on empathy or the existential ideas in Carpe Diem and, and this particular book, do these do these change you as a person in the process of writing them? And have you changed as a person as a result of writing The Good, ans- good, the good Ancestor? And was that, a, was that a motivation for you to write it, you know, that it would change your own perspective?
1: I always write books on things where I feel I'm struggling in my own life. So I wrote a book on empathy because I thought I wasn't very good at it. I wrote a book on seizing the day because i thought i have spent too much time in my study where i'm currently speaking to you from you know i needed to get out into the world and equally i've written a book on being good answers to partly because it's something i struggle with you know trying to get beyond the here and now to to make a commitment not just in my thoughts but in my actions to the generations of the future and so in that sense you know every book is a, a journey of discovery and my books I'm not usually any great expert on the topic before I start writing the book. Probably that's slightly differently with the case with empathy, but you know, I embarked on this book, The Good Ancestor, knowing about some things like the history of time, but having to teach myself ecological economics or get my wife to teach me. Uh, and that was quite a struggle, you know. or think about systems thinking and new areas of neuroscience and so on. But in terms of changing me, I think the big change is that I really have discovered that there is a time rebel movement in the world there are people committed to taking a longer view i didn't realize how many of them there were in how many parts of the world how much commitment they they had in a way it's not surprising I, I, there's always a danger there because you start looking for something you're bound to find it like you can find any psychology experiment to back up your particular view of humankind but i do you know in in, in a sort of balanced way think that there is a movement of people committed to the long term that the idea of intergenerational justice will simply become more and more important as this century goes on. You know, we are hammering future generations. You know, we're pumping carbon into the sky which will be there for decades and centuries. By 2100, even at conservative estimates, we'll be in a world that is three to four degrees hotter sea levels will be one to two meters higher that will devastate without question for a start the bread baskets of the world um and you know there's no way around those impacts happening no matter how quickly we decarbonize so our obligations to future generations are enormous um it's just at least I found, I think maybe this actually, this is the the fundamental point of what I learned from the book. Once I saw in my mind's eye that there are all these billions of people in the future, I couldn't unsee them. I can't unsee them. And you know, I used to be a political scientist back in the 1990s. I was apparently an expert on democracy. It never once occurred to me, really, it never once occurred to me that we disenfranchise future generations in the way that say women and slaves have been systematically disenfranchised in the past and still are today in many ways, of course. But, you know, there's a whole political constituency that have no voice, and that's not okay.
0: 100%. I, it was really surprising to me to learn about just like all the different groups that are actually taking legal action for future generations. And also there are groups trying to uh, get citizenship for the planet, for nature, in the same way that corporations have as well. I think that's, that's incredible. You know, people are actually working on these things. Um, but how much of this comes down to awareness, Roman? You know, after they took the first picture of the Earth from space, you know, we had this whole idea of the overview effect, and it developed this new awareness of how fragile planet Earth actually is, and it's this small sort of self-contained system. And how much of this is just like you're, you're saying that once you learn, once you saw these trillions of people in the future, you could never go back. Like how much of this is, this is just bringing people's awareness to to future generations and how can we best do that whether it's through new technologies like virtual reality or you know have you thought much about that
1: that's a really fascinating question actually and it's a tough one because on some level all change is about awareness you know if change is about i'm not talking about you know changing in the earth's structure or something like that but you know the the changes that we make as human beings you know, it's about the choices that we make. And to make different choices, we need to change who we think we are and what we think matters, change what the great uh, sociologist Karl Mannheim in the 1920s called the Weltanschauung, our worldview, right, how we see the world. And I think an awareness of the ideas that shape us, the metaphors we use is so fundamental. And certainly, I think that That question, are we being good ancestors, is a question of awareness. It's a question of awakening in the deepest sense that you can find in the works of Swami Vivekananda or whoever your gurus happen to be. You know, so many philosophies have asked us to become aware of something. And so I think the good ancestor as a phrase, as a concept, is one way into it. Um, I think it's not the only way. I mean, as you mentioned, those astronauts who look at the Earth and have that overview effect um, and see its fragility. That's another way. In fact, I once met an astronaut and he said to me and he spent time in the International Space Station. And he said the amazing thing was not looking at the Earth and seeing how fragile it was, that blue green marble. It was looking the other way. I said, why? He said, well, because when you look the other way, you see nothing, just blackness. He said, that's when he really understood how fragile the earth was. I just really seen there was nothing in the other direction. Right. And that's a kind of awareness too, but then how do we get that kind of awareness? And that's tough. And I think we all get there in different ways. Look on the most practical level I've written a book because I think that reading a book is one way to get that awareness, but I know it is certainly not the only way, you know, I once met, a a Native American um, medicine woman who talked to me about seventh generation decision making, I've never forgotten that conversation. It, it, it shook me to my core, because I really, that's when I really recognize how severed I am as an individual from the generations of my past and future, even though I care about my family history and the lives of my children or grandchildren, if there are any to come. Um, But to, to have a conversation with somebody was a real shift. I mean, for my kids, um, you know, I think my daughter, when she went on on her first Friday for Futures March, when she took herself out of school, when she was in year six, and joined 10,000 kids on the streets of London. um, And I think she felt the energy, that collective energy of being committed to the future. um, And that was a kind of awareness raising thing. So yeah, I think, we don't only get awareness by crossing our legs and sitting, sitting under the under the bow tree, as it were. Um, in a way, going back to an idea in my book, I wrote on empathy, we need altrospection as much as introspection, you know, we need to look in at ourselves, but also need to step outside, discover other cultures, other people, other ways of living, other ways of thinking, take action with others. Um, those are the things that can bring us to a kind of a heightened state of awareness. And out of that, well, then then you're ready for action.
0: Definitely. Um, just a couple more questions before we finish up, Roman. Um, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this or not, but I'm just curious to ask. You know, if if um, by some miracle you were to be made Prime Minister of the UK um, next week, what would you? What policies would would you be trying to get in place? Like, what what changes would you be trying to make with that with that power that you you would have?
1: It's funny. As soon as you asked that question, I thought of um, the great 1920s uh, religious thinker um, Krishnamurti, who was brought up as a young boy to become the head of a religion um, linked to theosophy. And in fact, one day, I can't remember, I think it was in 1927, he announced to his followers that he actually wasn't, you know, any great uh, spiritual designate or anything like that. And he resigned. From being the head of his own religion, um, which I thought was absolutely amazing. So yes, if I became prime minister, maybe the first thing I'd like to do would be resign, that would be quite good. Um, based on the principle of subsidiarity, you know, because I really believe that decisions should be made at the lowest level possible. And that centralization of political power is one of the things which leads to short termism. And in a way, that's my answer to the question, if I could do anything, one of the things I would do would be to massively empower local government and cities to make decisions. Because actually, historically, cities are really good at taking long-term decisions. So if you think about London in the 19th century, they built the sewers after the great stink of 1858, when tens of thousands of people were dying from cholera. But they built the sewers twice as big as they needed to be, and that's why they're still used today. I mean, the first grid city was designed in ancient Greece in Miletus in the year 479 BCE. Right. And that was all about long-term thinking and planning. Cities like Istanbul and Varanasi and Luzhong, you know, have survived for millennia while nations and empires have risen and fallen around them. So it's a kind of long way of saying devolution, decentralization. That's one thing I would start doing as if I was a prime minister. Second thing I do is I'd definitely open a ministry for the future. Um, set up a new government ministry. There would be a minister for the future who would probably be a young person whose job would be would be to look at the impacts of public policy several generations ahead, but they would not be just a power hungry platonic guardian, but they would be accountable to a citizens assembly of people, a representative of sample of people from the country who would inform the minister for the future of what he or she should be thinking or doing. And that minister would also have the power to take government departments to court for failing to reach long-term public policy targets in environmental healthcare, care, environment education areas and things like that. So plenty to do if I became prime minister.
0: Brilliant. Um, so you, you work on, you work on a lot of um, interesting topics. I'm just curious, is there anything brewing in you now that you're thinking about exploring next? Like a, w- what's what's next for you in terms of projects? Is there anything on the horizon?
1: You know, normally, after I've written a book, within about six months or a year, I've got an idea for a new book or I've always, or had one ready to go. But after writing The Good Ancestor, I don't know what it is, but it sort of filled my head so much. I can't make the transition to a new topic or get my teeth into something new. I just I guess partly because I'm very engaged in trying to spread the word and spread the ideas, whether it's talking to members of parliament in the UK or progressive businesses in the US or Indonesia or school groups around the world and things like that. I'm doing a lot of that stuff and COVID has made a lot of it possible. But in terms of next projects, I'm sort of one thing brewing, which is not a book project, actually, it's a film project. So, you know, I talked about the idea of time rebels, all these people committed to the long term. Um, I quite like the idea of making a film where instead of having a book where I write about these people, there's a film where they talk about what they're doing in their own words. So a kind of a documentary. Um, To reveal the time rebels of the world uh, to humanity to give them a voice. That's something I quite like to do use the medium of of film. Uh, If I can convince Netflix to take the long view and think that time rebels are important that might be the way to go
0: that'll be fast hope you can you can make that work um so roman it's been brilliant to talk to you where can people find you online um i know you recommend buying the book from local bookstores and not on the the big retailers um so where where do you reg- recommend people to go pick it up
1: they can pick it up at hive.co.uk or go to my website romankrishnarik.com there's links to local booksellers there follow me on twitter at romankrishnarik write questions to me I'll try and give answers long-term answers in just 280 characters I will do my best so look forward to hearing from everybody
0: thanks very much Roman and th- I would just say this is a very very important book and it's a subject I hadn't really thought much about before before I picked it up but um it's just it's got the potential to really transform the way we look at ourselves and our place our place on this planet so Yeah, it's just, it's really, it's worth a read. And also pick up Roman's previous books as well. Um, Carpe Diem, for example, has a massive change in the trajectory that my my life took. So I, I really recommend that too. And Roman, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today and best of luck going forward. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much.